Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Folks, you have to go to Zurich. I mean, John, a number two value meal, McDonald's. Was it twenty dollars? It, no, it's like seriously fourteen dollars for. I mean, you go in, folks. Wait, wait. This is right down by. You Bonsa. actually got a Happy Meal? No, we checked the price. No, okay. not a Happy Meal. No, excuse me. <laughs> Thank you. Must, you. you must Thank not you for have the children. Check. Okay. Oh. The kids get the Happy Meal with the four, the six piece chicken McNugget, right? Hold on a second. Okay. He's trying to say he's populist because he bought his kid a Happy Meal in, in, in Switzerland. Let me tell you In Zurich Airport, there are about two places that you can get some food. There is a restaurant upstairs, and yeah. then downstairs, there's a Burger King. So when you go past the Burger King, that's when you check in just to see how much the meal costs. So you check just in, to you get your actually update. buy it. Just to get your update. You, <laughs> you, take, down, you take a look at it, you say, wow, that's expensive. If, if you then go, you walk on. If you go down the, the street from Hermes, where the bow tie is literally $40 more than it is on Madison Avenue here. I mean, I'm not kidding. The currency dynamics. I don't think you are. There is a McDonald's. Al from New Jersey once, he shared a lunch with me there. And, you know, he loaded up. He had like two Big Macs. It was like $42. You're going to get in trouble. Yeah, this is it. You've Let's crossed the Rubicon. Can you bring this back? Yeah. SMB uh, disagrees with what uh, they're doing in Sweden. We're going to continue this conversation now with Shahab Jalanous, Credit Suisse, head of FX and macro trading strategy. Shahab, Sweden abandoning negative interest rates. Can we read anything into this more broadly for the other central banks in Europe continuing this experiment? Well, I think uh, this was well flagged. Uh, so... The immediate surprise effect isn't really there. But at the same time, we are seeing interest rates, uh, at least longer-term interest rates, going up uh, across the euro area at this moment, across Europe in general. Um, as equity markets do better, as the markets look forward to uh, a better bro- growth prospect next year globally. So all it really does, I think, is underline the fact that uh, at this point, the market, if anything, is now looking for higher rather than lower rates across uh the overall European rate space. Uh, and that's that's probably the, uh, the most important aspect of this, I think. Shahab, you raise a really good point. We've reached the bottom, and now uh, the path is going to be up. That seems to be the implication. Is there a bigger message, though, to be read through uh, the idea that we did not see much of a move in markets? It wasn't this amazing, catastrophic event going to zero. Does that give us a lesson? Well, I think it tells you, certainly, that if you flag what you plan to do well enough in advance. Um, And if it just so happens that global conditions are supportive of what you want to do at that point in time when you when you reach that decision, uh, then you can get away with a move like this. Our Uh, conditions? And and it's notable as well. There were two dissenters to this decision, uh, two of the deputy governors uh, disagreed. And what that does is it leaves some optionality to change course next year without losing too much face. Uh, So I think that's that's another factor to bear in mind as well. Are conditions conducive to going to zero in Europe right now? I think it's, it's different in the case of uh, the ECB and, and the euro area, simply because inflation expectations uh, remain very muted at this point in time. And there are other significant risks. For example, uh, some fear that the tariff war, uh, the, as, as the U.S. tariff war against China subsides, perhaps one against the uh, euro area could start. So these kinds of risks probably mean that it's, it's too soon to think about uh, any, any form of um, movement away from negative rates by the ECB. I know Sweden's going to get a lot of attention today, and they may well do in the coming months too, but the ECB is forecasting inflation of 1.1%. 
in 2020. Sweden and the Swedish Central Bank is forecasting inflation of 2020 of what? 1.8%. And Shahab, isn't that the difference for the ECB and the Riksbank? That Sweden is basically on the money on target and the ECB is nowhere near? I think that's, that's a key part of this. Uh, and ultimately, with the d- various disagreements that are going on at the ECB, uh, apparently, between the different central bank governors, that adds uh, another layer of intrigue, I guess you could say, uh, to the decisions that the ECB is likely to make in 2020. But yes, until inflation expectations move materially higher, uh, it's quite difficult to see a move away from negative interest rates, especially as, as what we'll probably see if markets really get excited about rates moving higher in Europe persistently is a stronger euro uh, to boot, right. also tightens monetary conditions. That's right so where I wanted to go. That's another thing that they need to avoid for now. That's right where I wanted to go. What is your call on euro? I mean, is it a tradable currency next year? Well, we actually think euro is still in the funding currency category. We, uh, we feel that uh, those looking for uh, a better global environment in 2020 uh, can look at other currencies that are more high beta uh, for uh, investment in, in, as opposed to the euro. Uh, so, for example, we think the high beta space in G10 includes the likes of uh, Norway, uh, yeah. the Australian dollar. Uh, and in emerging markets, there's a lot of choices as well, um, including, for example, yeah. the South African rand. So uh, the euro as a negative rate uh, currency is not the most appealing right. to pick at this point. Well said. Uh, Shahab Jalanus, thank you so much. Thank you, Shahab. Uh, Credit Suisse. Greg Villiers is a student of all this, from Johnson to Clinton to uh, President Trump, and he joins us right now. To me, Greg, there was an entire somber tone to the process. Am I wrong on that, or did that capture what you observed yesterday in Washington? No, you're right, Tom. Good morning. I think that Pelosi wanted to show the country that they were not jubilant, and she cut off any celebration very quickly. I thought that was pretty astute of her. She is going to delay. This is something that I guess came out of nowhere. Uh, does she have the ability to delay the process to the Senate? Apparently, and I think that's the big deal. I think that's the story coming out of last night, which was so predictable, except for this new angle, and that is she may delay for weeks uh, any uh, submission of impeachment charges to the Senate until they show her that they're going to have witnesses. Craig, I'm wondering, uh, going forward, what the political consequences of this vote will be, given the fact uh, that President Trump is using it to try to ignite his base. Will that be effective? Well, it sure was at that rally he had last night in, uh, I think it was Wisconsin, I mean, a very raucous, uh, adoring crowd. So he's ginned up his base. You know, whether he's ginned up that great chunk of centrist voters, that 35, 40 percent of the people in America who could be swayed, that the jury's still very much out on that. But I, I do think he's united the Republicans more than he could have ever hoped for. Yeah, that rally in Battle Creek, uh, Michigan, I believe. I'm just yep. trying to understand the Republican Party how we can sort of separate it out from President Trump. I mean, is uh, the Republican Party at this point uh, the Trump Party and that essentially anything that is, uh, you know, a rebuke of him will be used to try to get a voter voter turnout? 
Well, you're right, Lisa. I think that it's now his party entirely. He's dominated the party, terrorized the party. And I think what they also own is a 3.5% unemployment rate. And I think that's a big plus. Greg, the president yesterday at that campaign rally referred to the process as, quote, a political suicide march for the Democratic Party. How's it playing out in the polls in a moment, Greg? Yeah, I mean, the polls, John, have, have slightly weakened for impeachment. But Trump said the last week that his poll numbers have gone through the roof, which typically for Trump is not true. Uh, I think his poll numbers have improved a bit. Uh, but there's more to come. I, mean, I think there's more twists and turns, like Pelosi withholding the impeachment charges going to the Senate. You know, maybe we will hear from John Bolton. Maybe we'll hear from Rudy Giuliani. Maybe Trump himself will continue to be his own worst enemy on, on uh, things like letters to Pelosi. So there's more twists and turns to come, but the bottom line is still Trump will remain as president. The Democrats say they're upholding the Constitution. This isn't about electoral politics, but it will have consequences for 2020. And a conversation we've been having on this program, Greg, is essentially that the president is already conducting a national campaign at a time when the Democrats are still in the business of selecting their nominee for the campaign next year. They are focusing on the smaller states ahead of all of that, and they're drowning in partisan politics down in Washington, D.C. Just how much can the president leverage this moment to put himself on a firmer footing into next year? Well, I think he can. And as, as you guys all know, I try to be a centrist. I'm not an ideologue on one side or another. But I must say, it's a pretty sorry group of Democrats. I mean, they debate tonight, and I'm sure they're going to go after each other pretty aggressively. I mean, there's no one in the group that I see who, who clearly uh, could beat Trump. I mean, it's possible Trump could lose. I think the Electoral College map doesn't favor no. him as much. But, uh, boy, that's a weak group of Democrats he's facing. We should mention as well that Michael Bloomberg is the founder of Bloomberg LP and, of course, of Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio and is a candidate for that Democratic uh, nomination. That speaks, Greg Vallier, to a recalibration into the weeks of 2020 of what moderate means to Democrats. Senator Warren has shifted. There's imperceptible changes. What's a moderate Democrat look as we launch into the holiday season? Well, there's three or four big ones. As you mentioned, Bloomberg, there's Biden, there's Amy Klobuchar, there's Buttigieg, who, have, who are all relatively moderate for that party. But Trump, I think, would try to demonize any of them, saying that oh, they all know that. Yeah, but yeah. he'll say they all favor big tax increases. They're all, you know, closet socialists. So, I mean, he'll still have an argument. But I think right now this crazy primary season right. rewards pandering in Iowa to the most extreme elements may reward, oh. believe it or not, Bernie Sanders, uh, who is, I think, had a little surge. I think Sanders could win New Hampshire, as he did easily four years ago. I mean, Greg, this is really important, and you're a real student of this. For, for those of us that are clueless, that would be me included, how different is this process to March 3rd than the last time around? Well, there's one very big difference, and that is a, a major candidate, Mike Bloomberg, is not contesting the early primaries. He's saving his uh, a powder. I mean, his ads have been quite good, in my opinion. I think he could do well on March 3rd. So I don't want to diminish 
Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, but they're not yeah. quite as important as they were four years ago. Greg, you're killing me every time you mention Mr. Bloomberg. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, John, I'm He's a, you're actually killing him. He's actually you've got to say the disclaimer. I'm agent right here. We should mention again, folks, Mr. Bloomberg's affiliation with Bloomberg Surveillance, Lisa. Greg, I'm curious about what the playbook is post uh, post election, right? I mean, I was talking with one uh, one investor who is saying that perhaps we'll start talking about an infrastructure bill again. Uh, come next December. Is that plausible? Do you think that we're actually going to see any feasible proposals uh, like that on the table? Well, they'll talk about it. I mean, they'll talk about tax cuts, too. I think Trump will talk about big middle-class tax reductions, which I don't see getting past Pelosi. I don't see an infrastructure bill passing either. But I think Trump will make it clear that he's willing to spend money. If there's one big economic theme in this city, it's not the, the monetary stimulus. It's the fiscal stimulus, which I think will continue to be very, very robust. You know, I want to go, Greg, to some of the challenges that are out there in infrastructure. Like in Merrimack, New Hampshire, built in 1959, I-89 over South Street. I mean, mean, that's your neck of the woods. Why is it so hard to fix I-89 overpass in Merrimack, New Hampshire? Well, the first reason is that they have to figure out a way to pay for it, and nobody, of course, would dare. Well, you know, no one in New Hampshire wants to pay for it, but it's like federal, right? Yeah, but even on the federal level, no one wants a gasoline tax, which could pay for it. But it'll come. And I guarantee you guys, as we go through 2020, Trump will talk okay, a lot about infrastructure. Very quickly here, Greg, we built the, inter- the, the interstate yep. system. You're too young to remember this, but we built the interstate system under Eisenhower. Sure. And I think that Trump would love to do something similar. Also, a wild card, guys, student debt relief. I think a proposal is coming. There's a piece this morning in the Wall Street Journal. They're not going to forgive it, but they might restructure debt. That's going to be a plus for them. Greg, great to catch up with you. Greg Vallier there, Greg, AGF oh, yeah, Investments you. Chief, U.S. Policy Strategist. I'm just trying to digest the, on the tuition year ahead in politics. Yeah, well, Somebody's going to forgive the tuition payments. I, I actually think that would be huge. That would be huge economically because a lot of people say that that's one thing that's been holding back uh, housing <clears throat> formation among younger right. people as well as just spending it's in general. a huge deal. Paul Sridi and Tom Keen, and we are thrilled to bring you his first interview after announcing uh, an ease back in the schedule from the grind of every day, every day. And trust me, folks, if you're on Global Wall Street, you know the grind of every day, every day to occasionally during the week. He first began publishing uh, when his book was released in 1957, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. And we're well, <laughs> we're thrilled to have the Grinch with us here today. Dennis Gartman as well. Dennis, a lot of people saying, why? Is it about health? Is it about this? Is it about that? Did Mrs. Gartman say enough? Do we blame the president? Is it President Obama's fault? Why are you retiring? Yes. 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 <laughs> oh, yes. It's all of the above. It's uh, primary. First of all, it's the, the guys that I used to play golf with and beat all the time who retired three years are, are, are beating me now. So I've got to try to retire and try to catch up with them. But quite honestly, <laughs> when I started doing this 35 years ago, I got the China People's Daily two days late in the mail and I was still a week ahead of everybody else. Yeah. Now everybody gets the China People's Daily on the Internet. I mean, it's instantaneous. So the, yeah. the transformation of, of the business has, has simply gone past me. So I'm, yeah. I've, I've decided that nearly 70 years old. 
and then getting up for 35 years at 1 o'clock in the morning trying to knock this thing out, it's time to say I've grown past. You always have to throw history into it, and you've got a wonderful thing here uh, from a guy you used to work with, Jess Livermore, and you go, after all, all, this is a bull market. (laughs) You think, Dennis, is it still a bull market? It's still a bull market. That's a great line from uh, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator, which is a book that everybody who's an investor or a trader should read twice and reread twice. You ought to see my copy. It's just dog-eared beyond belief. But there's a great section in there where Jesse is talking about getting out of a winning trade, and he talks to Old Turkey, and Old Turkey says, well, after all, it's still a bull market. <laughs> and there's something to be said for that. It, it, it is still a bull market. Things are going from the lower left to the upper right, and they'll continue. Write this down until they stop. So that's the question that we, Tom and I probably get most often here on surveillance is, you know, we're 10-plus years into this economic cycle. The markets have just been ripping since the financial crisis, and we just had a great 2019 <laughs> What do I do for 2020? Pray. Pray. <laughs> Pray. There's the, 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 the trend is still up, and it's, it's shocking to me. Four years ago, I thought that the bull market could have come to an end. Three years ago, it should have come to an end. Two years ago, it should have come to an end. It'll come to an end when it comes to an end. You have indications, the types of activities that occur at, at, at tops. WeWork is a perfect example of the yep. market. Yep. And, you were a big shareholder in that, weren't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I was trying to be – I was hoping it would go public so I could get short. And you had the the last week that uh, that wonderful banana attached to a wall with with right. uh, with duct tape. <laughs> you bought that? <laughs> yeah. No, actually, a friend of mine did. Uh, but those are the sorts of things that happen at market tops. But uh, you know, this the market looks like it wants to go parabolic, and it'll it'll continue until some geopolitical circumstance changes things. It's interesting. I think you know, it's I don't really. I'm trying to think back to how the markets behaved during the '98 impeachment of President Clinton. But this market just doesn't care. It doesn't care. And nor, those, nor should it, do you think? Well, it, yes, it should, but it doesn't. And until it starts to care, then, then it cares. It'll care when it cares, and it won't care until then. All news in this environment is bullish. That's simply the matter of fact. That's what's going on. Uh, you may find it ludicrous, and I find it absolutely ludicrous. But nonetheless, to fight that trend, I've tried to fight it two or three times. It's is it a, just it's a the, I mean, I, I, you know, based upon my 30 years in the business, if there's one you know, truism I've learned, it's just interest rates. Do not fight the Fed. And Don't fight the Fed. the Fed's Fed. sitting on the sidelines. That was Marty Zweig's great line, yep. and it's something that everybody should remember. Don't fight the Fed. Well, we've yeah. seen this in space this year. I mean, and you've written about this, Dennis, and it's to the point of the great Martin Zweig, this year with a vengeance, with a vengeance. the central bank has shown their power. They're on the edge of ultra-accommodative. Inflation-adjusted Fed funds target rate is rolling back. Do you perceive we're going to more ultra-accommodation do they find normalcy here? Or are we all going to get faked out with them like we did last year when they said rates are going up? What's their propensity to tighten? I think their propensity to tighten is borderline zero for at least the next year or so. Well, is their propensity to ease any, any greater? Probably not. I think we could be right where we're at in Fed funds a year from now is where we're at right now. I think well, that's, that's, that's probably normal for the, for the next 12 months or so. Zero Edge had a great chart they took from somebody that was the six stop, top stocks are concentrated like they were in 1999. Yeah. What does that signal to you? That's the kind of activity that you get at a market top, but it can continue to go for a if long If I own time. Amazon and Apple now, I got lucky and I got gains, what do I do? Hang on, put a stop in, buy puts, do something, write calls. But uh, the market's told you that you're right. Why no, Why? Why would you get out? That every time of, I, every, yep. the past two years, every time I've had something that was profitable and I decided I'd take a shot and get out, <laughs> I'd wish two weeks later that I hadn't done that. I mean, that's just what the market's telling us. that. The, 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 one of the great lines that to, to be uh, embraced is it, it, it was either by Lord Keynes or my good friend Gary Schilling. It doesn't matter who it went to. 
Lord the Schilling. Lord, <laughs> Lord Schilling, yes. The market can remain illogical far longer than you or I well, can remain solvent. We got 30, 40 seconds here, and then we'll come back with you, Dennis. I mean, that's the call of our lifetimes, has been Gary Schilling, his call of disinflation. Of the bond market. There's absolutely, absolutely no absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Gary I, nailed it. People laughed at him when he started to talk about it 35 years ago, and yeah. he's been right ever since. It's an extraordinary call. What we're going to do is come back with Dennis Gartman. Lots to talk about uh, here with futures at negative two. Mr. Gartman, of course, writing his letter, we protect the copyright of all of our guests unless they're retiring. Yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> You can get the Gartman letter and it will still be published. Look for that uh, from Mr. Gartman. Uh, you, know, you know, I love this. He's got seven and counting. Yes, he's, he's counting he's got down. His days. He's counting down. Yeah, don't we all? No, we're counting yeah. them by the years here. And Mike has the surveillance casket out back. That's right. He's going to roll me into uh, one day. The sadness last night when Afterthought came into the room and said, does this mean the president loses his job? And I had to explain to a 12-year-old, you know, the process and what's going on. The somberness yesterday of this as well. And I want to go to your support, as you've written in your note for years, of Republican politics. Can the Republican Party, party of Lincoln survive no. this 2019? No. No, it cannot. The Republican Party has given up being the Republican Party. It used to be the party of lower taxes and free trade. Now it's the Republican Party of Mr. Trump. Okay. And that's what it's become. It's a, it's a personality cult. Yeah. And I find that disconcerting. I, I, I have been a Republican all my life, and I find it very difficult to, to maintain my position. Is this the Whigs of 1842? I mean, I mean, you're steeped in the Henry Clay. You went to it's a small college in North Carolina, North Carolina yes. State, which is the... <laughs> That's the land-grant Whig school of the South. <laughs> but is this, are they going to go the way of the Whigs? Yeah, I think they're going to, sadly they're going to disappear. I'm, 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 afraid, I'm afraid that that's exactly what's going to happen. Um, the, the, the better minds of the party are leaving quietly at the fringes. And, and this is, yeah, let, let me repeat, this is disconcerting. Do you expect the Republicans to stand firm with the president during this Senate? Oh, they will. Issue? And it's they, just a pl political survival? They will. They, they have no choice. They, they know if they don't, they're going to be scathingly reviewed by the president on, on the national media, and they're going to be hurt by it. So he's, he's in the controlling position. So the best they'll get is, uh, the, the best the Democrats will get is maybe one defector. And if that, I'd be surprised. So as an investor, as I you know go through this month of January here, is a risk to my portfolio forever how the Senate issue plays out? No, I mean, we know how the Senate issue is going to play out. They need to get two-thirds of percent of the, of, the, of the votes in the Senate, and they're not going to get close to that. In fact, it probably will be a majority in voting in his favor. I may find that disconcerting, but that's, what, that's the reality of the circumstance. So what's the, what's the risk? The risk is that some untoward news may come out of the president, some <clears> silly <throat> thing that he said. But even that's, uh, I think, a relatively inconsequential in, in risk. Agreed on the screen. Dennis Gartman with us, of course, the Gartman letter. The Dow 28,318 when Mr. Gartman joined the business. Dow was at 312. <laughs> exactly. Actually, so it was right a, now. Actually, first, it was 476. 476. <laughs> I, I do remember that. Somebody was saying go to cash at the time. <laughs> yeah, right? well, there were. Right now, first time, first time caller into Bloomberg surveillance. This is Doug in Florida. <laughs> Doug, oh, my Lord, good morning. Doug, yes. Doug, a question for. Mr. Gartman, please. favorite fan. Uh, hey, yeah. Dougie, how are you, buddy? Doug, a question for Mr. Gartman, please. Oh, the question I just asked um, on Twitter. Um, what did I ask? Oh, yes. 
Uh, talk amongst yourselves. Answer the following <laughs> question. Um, in March of 2009, I felt that the equity market, the S&P, was making a generational bottom, as you know. Um, back in June or early July of 2016, I made the case that bond yields are making a generational low. Your thoughts? I think the next generational low is, uh, first of all, congratulations, Doug. I mean, and you have been hammering those points home for years and years, and you've been absolutely right, so well done. I think if we're asking where's the next generational low going to be, I think the next generational low is going to be in the commodity markets. I think things are unbelievably, scathingly, incomprehensibly cheap at this point. Uh, the, the, the generational trend in the bond market is likely to continue to go. Rates are continuing to go lower and prices are going yeah. to continue to go higher. And the generational low in the stock market, that's going to continue to move from, from the lower left to the upper right until it stops. But if we're looking yeah. for another generational low for something that's inexpensive commodities. Yeah. Doug Cass, uh, Dennis Garvin's idea of long term is three days. We all know that. Well, three hours. Three hours. Three hours. <laughs> As well. Doug, you have set the bar this year for a discussion of the most owned Amazon. And you've had the courage to go out with a five-year view or even longer. Justify what Mr. Bezos is doing right now. Yeah, I have a, a price target basically around $5,000 looking out five years from now. And um, I was initially concerned and what kept me from Amazon, Sir Thomas and Dennis was uh, for some time until December of 2018, when the stock was trading around $1,350, um, was that I was concerned about um, regulatory interference. They're making all these, um, you know, horizontal, um, uh, vertical acquisitions uh, within retail industry and across other industry lines, and I thought there would be severe antitrust problems. And I've come to the conclusion that the uh, regulatory headwinds are n not nearly as concerning as I thought. Indeed, uh, regulations might even deepen the company's moat or franchise value as uh, less capitalized companies without the financial resources of Amazon and Bezos will be ill-equipped um, 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 to, to comply with new regulations. So I think... Amazon, obviously, the early and first adopter to the concept of buying on the Internet uh, has a much, much larger yeah. runway than most investors expect. Dennis, tell us about long-term investment. I mean, you've got trades, and your gold trade has been brilliant. What are you up, like 15% on that all the more, Way more than that. Yeah. Way, way more Excuse than me, that. But, I've, had, I've had it on for five years. So Okay. But, but tell us about how you do long-term investment like Cass is doing in Amazon right now. I wish I had the intellect that Doug has because well, you don't. Doing, either do I. And, uh, no, nobody does. Plus, you don't I mean, have his golf game. Well, he's actually uh, mine was actually better than his for a while, but my, mine's deteriorating. His is getting better. And, and as I, I, I gave Doug as one. Da, of the, as David Bowie said, "Ch ch ch changes." And, and soft forearms, right? So, I know you told me that's how I won all the tournaments this year. Uh, soft uh, arms. Dennis, I got, I got forty seconds left. Tell me how you do long long term investment. I, I basically the first thing I look at is what's the chart telling me? Is it going from the lower left to the upper right? Is the new highs coming? Are are have new have have the yeah. lower have lows been consistently higher? I want to look at first of all technically is something telling me I'm to be bullish. Then I'll go find the fundamentals, which is a, contrary to what most people are taught. I'll go find the fundamentals that keep me involved with that long yeah. with that long term trend. But again, I want to hammer home the idea. 
if you're looking for the next uh, generational low, look at look at owning commodity prices. Period. Okay. End of discussion. Red wheat's in there as well. Red wheat, <laughs> hard red winter wheat. This has been wonderful, Dennis Gartman. Thank you so much, the Gartman Leonard. Doug Cass, thank you for joining us this morning. Cass, smarter than we are. It's warmer in Florida. Yes. He's with Seabreeze Partners. What are we doing, Tom? Of course. Paul, what do you see there? I mean, you know, again, it's see a little lift year, to the market. Like Tom. lift. Yeah, a little I mean, lift to the about, market. We, you, know. It, it, you know, we see this every day. It just kind of lifts a little bit uh, every day. And uh, in the absence of any yeah. news, this thing drifts higher. You didn't tell uh, Dennis I'm in the triple lever sell cash fund, <laughs> did you? <laughs> that didn't work. It's worked but out well. he sleeps well at night. <laughs> it's worked out well this year. Welcome all of you worldwide. We welcome with great sympathy all of you, the 2.7 million taking the CFA exam in June of 2020 <laughs> as well. Stunning. Uh, let, let me explain this. Full disclosure, CFA Institute has been a huge supporter of what I do here at Bloomberg. Uh, I am a member of the CFA uh, Institute, and I used to slide rule, Mary. Margaret. That's how far back it goes. An annual visit with Margaret Fitzgerald, uh, Franklin rather, Margaret Franklin of CFA, their president and CEO, and we welcome her here today to talk about the future of Wall Street and what the CFA Institute's doing. None of that matters. You grew up with Frank Mahovlich. I mean, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. In Toronto, he was one of our heroes. He was, this is folks in hockey, when one player could change the game and Frank Mahovlich would sit in the center of the ice in the offensive zone and no one could touch him. His was, dad sharpened our skates at Leaside Memorial Gardens. There were six teams. This is back when it was real hockey. Mm-hmm. And and they were, as you mentioned before, they were. Da- it was a down to earth thing. It wasn't people making eight or fifteen million dollars yep. a year. Yeah, it, it was, was a really real basic. It was a real thing. Let's let's talk about CFA and start in Toronto, international organization. You are focused on CFA Toronto now, in charge of all of the worldwide platform. How are you adapting to the international nature so, of what started out in Charlottesville, Virginia? So let me just say I'm actually in Charlottesville. Sure, we have of nine offices around the world. Toronto is a society, so I'm Canadian, uh, but now the global CEO. And uh, I would say my roots in Toronto, actually probably the most multicultural city in the world. Uh, we have We have a large contingent of Chinese passport holders taking the exams and elsewhere from around the world in Toronto, as is the case in many Canadian cities. Um, and when I wrote my exam, it was not as global, it wasn't even close to being global the way it is right now. How have you adapted the exam to the new mathiness of global Wall Street? It used to be, my son played lacrosse with your son. Do you have an intern program? I mean, that <laughs> used to be how it yeah. went. Yeah. And now it's about intellectual chops. How have you adapted that 10 years on? So the CFA program has really two elements to it that keep it current and on point. The first is the practice analysis. That's where we go out to practitioners and make sure that what's in the curriculum is relevant for, call it the just qualified candidate. The other aspect of that is we get a lot of material that then informs our professional learning. So once you've got your charter, what is the thought leadership, the skills, uh, knowledge and capabilities that you need? So that practice analysis is a critical component, not only of curriculum, but also of our lifelong learning. So Margaret, you're the first uh, female CEO of the CFA Institute. Talk to us a little bit about the diversity that you see in the folks taking the CFA globally nowadays. So uh, I am the first female CEO in its 73-year history. Um, 
our industry suffers from a lack of diversity. We are seeing the numbers change. So for instance, China is 50% women in the candidate program. Um, but wow. but wow. frankly, uh, I got my charter in 1997. At that point, 19% of the charter holders were women and it's or 18%, it's now 19% um, over 20 years later. So uh, five years ago, myself and Leah Bennett uh, who's a board member, started the Women in Investment Management Initiative, which CFA Institute backed. Five years ago, we had to present the evidence that actually having diverse teams and including women, uh, which is the universal diversity issue, would improve risk and return. And What did you uh, learn? Um, really that, that the core tenet of portfolio diversification never made it into team construction. Um, what I would say is five years later, we don't have to push evidence. We now see an energy and intensity by employers for tools and strategies that will help them attract necessary and critical um, right. talent to make the best teams that they can. Well, and I'm thrilled to announce, folks, my year-end program this year with Goldman Sachs is Abby Joseph Cohen. Take Abby Joseph Cohen, who was a pioneer as an economist and with her prodigious financial skills, writing in the FAJ Journal as well, or someone like Sally Krawcheck at Stanford yep. Bernstein as well. These are people that were pioneers. They had prodigious intellectual chops. Why are we floating at 19% on females within the CFA Institute? That stuns me. So the I think some of the language we use doesn't attract the right type of people. So when we use quant language and very mathematical language, it sometimes doesn't appeal to the values and the core of what we do is developing portfolios to solve yeah, but, problems for investors. But, but women in finance have prodigious math abilities. I, mm -hmm. I believe Ann Richards will join me in yep. Davos with Fidelity International now. I mean, she's first rate mathematical skills. Why can't we jumpstart ourselves away from that mathiness stereotype yep. for women, including my daughters? So I think actually right now that's exactly what that's exactly what we're doing. And I will say there's an intensity and intention by employers around attracting women. And that actually will take some time to make it through um, the pipe, uh, but we really see something quite uh, different. I, I might note that oftentimes when it gets to trust and judgment, when you move up through the ranks, uh, you tend to gravitate to those who look like you. And so it's critically important that we have women in those senior leadership roles because if I can see it, I yep. can imagine it, visibility is validity. So Margaret, Tom and I, we speak to a lot of fund managers here in a surveillance studio. What we're hearing more and more about is ESG, environmental sustainability and governance, factoring into their investment process more and more. How is that how are you incorporating that into the CFA curriculum? So we've actually had it in the curriculum for about the last five years. Of course, it's increasing in importance. So when we talk to practitioners and we do that practice analysis, it really comes up. What an observation is that in particular, the US has been behind in this. We've seen it accelerating yep. dramatically in the last six months. Um, as portfolio managers, there is in increasing attention to what might be the Minsky moment, that immediate repricing of assets. And so when we think about what charter holders do, which is adhere to a fiduciary standard, putting their client's interests ahead of their own and solid research and due diligence, you really probably want to make sure that you're paying attention to those ESG factors that can material impact um, security pricing and portfolio pricing. 
I was an equity research analyst on the sell side and then here at Bloomberg for 30 years. So I saw, a, <laughs> I saw an article in the Bloomberg Terminal today that was very disturbing. Uh, analyst jobs vanish as a perfect store crashes into research, whether it's MIFID to just the decline of commissions. What are you seeing from the sell side? What, what are, is that impacting the 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 demand for charter this for the CFA designation at all? We still see the demand as very high. So we're at the, let's call it a top of a market. And that's often when you start to see a little leveling off. When we have a contraction, the need for better educated, more ethically oriented people striving for professional excellence becomes much more apparent. So um, we don't see a diminishment in demand for the charter. Uh, and for charter holders, yeah. but the nature of what they're doing is probably going to change over time. One final question, question 27. A fund manager's alpha is the part of the fund's return that can be attributed to, one, the market, skill, luck, and we're not sure. Is it one and two, one and three, or <laughs> one, three, and four? I might posit this a little bit differently. <laughs> we tend to base off, we love our four decimal places. I think the greatest challenge for portfolio managers yeah. is to really understand what it is clients are trying to achieve, balance the competing priorities to develop a resilient portfolio that actually gets them where they need to get to. It may or may not include yeah. beating a benchmark. It may not be beating a benchmark, <laughs> but once again this year, they're like, wait a minute, the market was up 27%. What happened? <laughs> well, hopefully if it's properly diversified, everybody understands go. what the portfolio is designed to do. <laughs> Margaret Fitzgerald, thank you. Margaret Franklin, excuse so me. Close. Thank you so close, another Irish name. <laughs> no, my eyes are failing me here. It's the scotch. Margaret Franklin, <laughs> thank you so much with the CFA Institute of Charlottesville, uh, Virginia. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>